So we're uh, continuing in our series uh, on the life of Jesus, everything that we can learn about who Jesus is, and we're doing this through the Gospel of Mark. We're walking through the Gospel of Mark uh, to discover what we can about the life of Jesus, knowing that as we consider the life of Jesus, we also are, uh, will be naturally reflecting on our lives as well. And so it's a really important because we, as we've talked about, if, if we believe that Jesus is the most unique, uh, the most important person in history, then it, it stands to reason that we would wanna know everything that we possibly can about him. Uh, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then it would it makes sense then if we're going to follow him that we would know everything that we possibly can about him. And so that's caused us to take this journey in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to remind us as we go through the Gospel of Mark that uh, Mark probably uses his primary source, uh, the Apostle Peter, for what he writes. So we're getting an eyewitness account uh, from the Apostle Peter through Mark in his gospel to understand who Jesus is. And that's an important part of this for us. This morning, we're gonna look at a couple of stories in the gospel of Mark, and it does matter about these stories. You know, we love to read stories, at least I do. Uh, I, I love to read stories, and, and often I finish a story, and, it, and I think that's a good story or not so good a story, and I'm kind of ready to go on to the next one. Uh, but this isn't that kind of story. This is an account out of the life of Jesus. And, and if it's in the Gospels, then it really matters to us because there were hundreds of examples, hundreds of stories that, that Mark could have put in this Gospel to tell us about Jesus. But these are the ones that were placed in there, and it seems uh, reasonable that God had a reason, that he had a purpose for putting these in here. And, and so as we look at these stories, we're not simply trying to read a nice account of the life of Jesus, but we wanna understand what is it that God wants us to know? Why did he choose to place these particular stories in the Bible? And so we look at that. There are a couple of things that I want you to think about this morning as we consider these stories. The first one is this, that, that these stories are gonna create a picture for us of where fear intersects with faith, where something that creates fear in us is challenged by our faith and we have to decide who's gonna win. Is our fear going to win or is our faith going to win? And we get to make that decision. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been repelling. Anybody ever been repelling? Okay, so I've done this about three times, plenty in my life. And the, the, here, here's the thing about repelling is repelling means you are stepping over a mountain backwards down a steep cliff, right? That's kind of the whole purpose of repelling, uh, that if you want to repel, you have to step off of a mountain backwards and trust a rope, and maybe who's holding the rope, uh, to get you down to the bottom without plummeting to your death. I just like the word plummet, so I threw it in there. <laughs> but that's the nature of repelling, and so I, I have to decide, do I, do I believe enough in this person that's, uh, that has harnessed me in and is tied that rope and is holding it now, do I believe, do I trust that person enough that I'm willing to step off this mountain backward and go down the mountain? Now, I want you to know the first step off the mountain, if you've never done this before, is terrifying. And you've got to make a decision. 
do I overcome my fear with faith in the rope and faith in the one who has the rope or do I allow my fear to control me and I, I never step off? In our lives, we come to these points regularly in our lives where, where we, have, we experience fear, we experience loss, and we've got to make a decision. Am I going to allow my faith in Christ to overcome my fear, or is my fear going to define who I am? Is my fear going to keep me from stepping out and, and, and doing what I need to do? Well, that's a picture of the two stories that we're going to look at this morning. That They're pictures of people who are experiencing fear, but they have to make a decision. Is their faith going to override their fear? or are they going to live in that fear? There's another, there's another axiom, there's another principle that I want to make sure as we're going through these stories that, that you're paying attention to, that you're looking for, and it's simply this, that when, we, when anytime we approach Jesus, uh, you always get, you always give more than you expect, and you always get, get more than you expect. You always give more than you expect, and you always get more than you expect. Let's look at that in Mark, the fifth chapter. Beginning in verse 21, here's the the scene. Uh, There's a great crowd. Well, let's look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So if if you remember, we've talked about that Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. It's It's a large lake. Uh, and he is, uh, one day he goes to the Sea of Galilee and there are so many people crowding in that he tells his disciples, push the boat a little bit further out in the water. I'm gonna stand in the boat and speak to all of these people. Well, then that night, after all that's done, he has his disciples push out from the water. And he says, let's go across the lake and a huge storm comes. They think they're gonna drown. Jesus calms the storm. Well, Mark 5 picks up the story where they've crossed back over the lake again and another crowd of people surrounds them. It's a large mosh pit that they're just, that they're standing there and people are, are squeezing in as close as they can. They're, they're trying to get as near to Jesus as they can, touch him, rub shoulders with him, hear what he has to say. The disciples are, are, are you know, sort of his security team. They're, they're trying to keep the crowd a little bit at bay, but there are so many people that they're crowding in on Jesus. And it says that they, Uh, that then, in verse 22, came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. And he, referring to Jesus, went with him. So here's the scene. This crowd of people gathered around Jesus, as tight as they possibly can, but somehow in the middle of that comes Jairus, who's one of the synagogue rulers. Now, that what this tells us, if, if you're living in the first century, that, that there was one temple in Israel, uh, the main temple, and, and sometime in your life, everybody, uh, every Jewish person is supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to, to offer a sacrifice, offer their prayers uh, in that temple. Now, in outside of that, uh, every little community, if you have 10 adult males, you can form your own synagogue. And so in Capernaum, they had a synagogue. And what we find out is that Jairus is one of the rulers, or we might say he's one of the presidents of the synagogue. Capernaum's not a huge place, so it's not probably a very big synagogue, but he's one of the presidents of the synagogue. There may be two or three uh, of them total. And he, so, but he's a very prominent person in Capernaum. 
He's very influential. You might say that he's a big fish in a a little pond. But he's in high regard, well-respected. We don't know if he's wealthy. We don't know the extent of his education, but we do know that, that he's considered a devout man. He's considered a huge influence in his community. So when Jairus is coming through the crowd, they're opening for him. And, and here's what the scripture tells us. is so unique that Jairus, one of the most influential men in Capernaum, one of, the, one of the leaders of the synagogue, he comes to Jesus. And what the story tells us is that seeing him, he fell at his feet one of the rulers of the synagogue, this really influential person, when he finds, when he gets to Jesus, he throws himself on the ground. You see, at that very instant, he's not a ruler of the synagogue. He's not an influential person, but he's a dad. That's who he is right at that second because his daughter is sick and they're scared to death that she's going to die. And all of the rest of the stuff, all of the credentials, all the titles, all of the influence, none of that matters right now because this is his little girl and she's dying and he sees Jesus and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. You, You know, the natural adversaries of Jesus during this time were the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders. And, and so Jairus probably at best was neutral about Jesus. Maybe a bit of a critic. If he wanted to stay out of trouble, probably he would go along with whatever the religious leaders would say, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and those. But at the very least, he was neutral, but not this day. This day, he's a dad. And this day, when he sees Jesus, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And then all the story tells us is that Jesus goes with him. That's it. And he went with them. Now, I love to digress a little bit and just picture because there's this crowd of people and, and Jairus is important and they're all going, man, look at this. And the disciples are so fired up because they've been waiting for this moment. They've been waiting for somebody really influential and really important and well-known to come and ask Jesus for something. And then, of course, Jesus will do it. And then they be, all become famous and, and the disciples are already planning their spinoffs. You know, they all know what they're gonna do and, and, and they're thinking about how much money and how much fame and all those kinds of things they're gonna get because this is the moment that they've been waiting for. Jairus is the famous guy. He's the well-known guy. Jesus is gonna go. He's gonna heal her son or his daughter and then they're all gonna, they're gonna ride it out from there. This is perfect. Way to go, Jesus. Let's go. Let's get there. And we have all of this stuff going on in the story. All of these different moments. The crowd trying to figure out what's gonna happen. Trying to get as close to Jesus as he can. The disciples thinking this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. And then we have Jairus, who's just a dad, and he's desperate for his little girl. Well, now, in the middle of all this, Jesus leaves with him, but Mark is going to insert another story. As you read the Gospels, I'm struck so often by how there's an outer story and an inner story, that there's a story within the story that happens. So as Jesus is heading off with Jairus, something else happens that that sort of stops the whole parade. Mark breaks off this story and he gives us a brand new one. And this is what he tells us in Mark 5, starting at verse 25. And a, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. That's a great Bible word for it. They're just squished together. 
thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, sorry, doctors, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So now here's what's happening in the middle of this parade, in the middle of this mosh pit, this beehive that's all kind of moving together toward Jairus' house. There's this woman, and we don't even know her name because she's so insignificant to the moment. She doesn't really matter to anybody there. In fact, she's had this hemorrhaging for 12 years, and, and so according to Jewish custom, she's considered unclean. She can't participate in any of the synagogue rituals or ceremonies or festivals. Um, she's a social outcast from her community. She's, she, it changes everything about how she relates to the people around her, her family and her friends. All of this is going on. And now she thinks about this opportunity that here comes Jesus. And, and if I can just sneak up, if I can somehow sneak through the crowd without anybody seeing me, if I can just get close enough to touch his garment. E even in that, what's interesting is that in the first century, they were still pretty superstitious about this. And, and there was an idea that if you had power that, that you could, by touching somebody's garment, you could, you could actually you could actually tap into that power. So here's this woman. She's, she's insignificant. She's an outcast. We don't even get her name. And she has this idea that if I can just work my way through the crowd without anybody recognizing me, because if they, if they recognize me, they're gonna block me out. They're gonna, they're gonna keep me out. I'm an outcast with these people, but if I can just make myself really small and work my way through there and touch Jesus, then maybe, maybe, what I've heard about happening to other people can happen for me. And she works her way through the crowd and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And the scripture tells us that immediately, immediately she was healed. It says, and, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. That very second, everything changed for her. Verse 30 says this, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now remember this, remember this moment that, that one of the things that we said is that when we approach Jesus, we're going to give more than we expected and we're gonna get more than we expected. So here's this woman she just realizes she's been healed. She snuck up to Jesus. She snuck up behind him because she didn't dare just walk up. She wasn't anyone like Jairus who could approach Jesus and ask for help. She came up behind him, but Jesus felt that power. This is the only time in the Gospels that we, that we hear that, that, that Jesus felt that power go out of him, that her faith overcame her fear and she touched Jesus and he felt something happening and he turned in the crowd and he said, who, who touched me? Imagine that you're in that crowd. Imagine you're that lady and you're trying to hide. You're trying to make yourself as small as you possibly can so that nobody will see you. You could just get there and, and you just hope that you can get close enough to Jesus to touch him so maybe something can happen. And, and sure enough, you're healed and he turns around in front of everybody and says, excuse me, 
Who touched me? Somebody. I felt it. Who touched me? Well, if we look at the story, the disciples are incredulous because uh, Jesus perceived some power's gone out of him, and he said, who's touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you, you say, who touched me? Are you kidding, Jesus? Who hasn't touched you? Everybody's trying to squeeze around. Everybody's trying to get near you. Well, how can you even imagine that there was something unique, something special about this? And, and yet this woman knows and Jesus knows that something's happened. Something's changed completely. She's healed. Well, the story goes on because she is healed. And this is one of the parts that I love in this story is that after she's healed, the woman, it says in the Gospels, that the woman tells Jesus her whole story. So here's this woman. We don't have her name. She's not significant to anybody there that day except for Jesus. He, she touches him. She sneaks up behind him. She touches him. Jesus feels that power. And now all of this is going on around him. The crowd who thinks they're going to Jairus' house, they think that Jesus will heal his daughter. The disciples who think this is the biggest moment in their careers, this is what they've been waiting for, and they're stalled here while Jesus stops to, to minister to this one woman. And what the story is, is that she tells him her whole story. Her whole story. 12 years of going to physicians and not getting help all of the money that she's spent, all the different symptoms that she's experienced, all of the pain, all of the frustration, all of the humiliation of being an outcast that she's experienced. She's telling Jesus her whole story and he is focused on this one lady while everything else is going on around him because that's who matters to him at this second. This one insignificant outcast. We don't know her name, but she meant the world of Jesus right there and he listens to her whole story. You see, nobody is really an outcast with Jesus. Everybody is significant with Jesus. Here's what happens. Jesus tells the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Here's the first thing that Jesus says. He calls her daughter. She's, no, she's not insignificant anymore. She's not unknown anymore. She's not an outcast anymore. With one word, Jesus has defined her. With one word, Jesus has acknowledged her. He said, not only are you important, not only are you significant, but I'm calling you my daughter. Now, it's likely that this woman is older than Jesus when they're standing there that day, but Jesus is saying to her, I'm the God of the universe. I was here from the beginning of time, and I have claimed you as my daughter. That's why in John 1:12 it says that to anyone, one who received him, he gave the right. Anybody who believed in him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. And that day, Jesus looks at this woman and he says, daughter, daughter, not outcast, not insignificant, not unknown, but you're my daughter. Can you imagine experiencing that? Can you imagine feeling that for the first time after being an outcast, after being unclean for 12 years, to suddenly have Jesus look at you and say, you're my daughter. We're family, you belong to me. Can you imagine being in the crowd that day 
and you've not talked to that woman in 12 years. You've, you've scorned her. She's an outcast. She doesn't matter. She doesn't belong. She doesn't fit. And, and you see Jesus, the Christ, look at her that day and hear him say, daughter. I can't imagine anything more powerful. I can't imagine anything more life-changing to be called a son or daughter of Jesus. Well, all of this goes on while Jairus is waiting. Verse 35 says, right on cue, it says that while he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. I'm giving you a rope and I'm giving you a harness and I'm asking you to step off the cliff. Are you going to live in fear? Or are you going to believe? Are you willing to step off and trust me? Don't fear, just believe. Believe in what I say. Believe in who I am. Trust me with your life. So they go to Jairus' house. Verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him. He didn't take the crowd with him. He didn't even take all the disciples. He just took Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. You see, there were more, people were mourning this daughter already. And if you were, the, if you were a, an influential person or a wealthy person, you could pay people, you could actually have professional mourners come to your house and, and help you, help you grieve, help you weep. And the idea was that if you hired these people and all these people were weeping and wailing and making a lot of racket, that uh, that the family then could grieve, the family could weep, the family could cry, and it wasn't as noticeable. It wouldn't stand out as much because all these other people were making all this noise around them. So they, I'm sure they heard the noise before they even got to the house. And Jesus walks in on all this commotion. He walks in on all this going on, that there was weeping and wailing loudly. Verse 39 says this, and when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. <laughs> I'm the God of the universe. I created her. I know. This isn't the end for her. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And you know what it says next? That they laughed at her. They laughed at him. <laughs> they laughed at Jesus. And you know what? People have been laughing at the followers of Jesus ever since. So let's just get over ourselves, okay? If they laughed at Jesus, they'll laugh at us. That's all right. I've never met anybody who died from being laughed at. We're, all, we're okay. And what was Jesus' response to that? Nothing. He just sends everybody out of the house. So the story continues. When he entered... He, uh, he asked them, why are you uh, making commotion, weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in uh, where the child was. So he'd left the crowd behind. Now he leaves all the wailers and the mourners outside. He just takes Peter and James and John with him and he takes the mom and the dad and himself and the sixth of, six of them go into the room where the child is laying. And I think one of the most remarkable things in scripture happens next. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, 
Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, not very often in the Gospels do we get this moment where they stick with the Aramaic. This is Aramaic uh, language, and it's the language, the common language that the Jews spoke, that Jesus spoke. And here's what I want you to think about, that that, that moment was so powerful in, in Peter's memory. It was so significant that when he's recounting this story from Mark, that all he can think about is what the, the original words that Jesus used. Talitha kum. And it gets translated, uh, little child, get up. But, but here's the content. Here's what it really feels like. Imagine you go into your child's bedroom and it's time for them to wake up. And they look so sweet when they're asleep, right? Yeah, that's the best moment right there. They're asleep. They look so sweet when they're asleep. And you see them and your heart just melts. And it's time to wake them up. And so with this heart that's melted for your child, you look down and you say, honey, it's time to get up. Sweetie, it's time to get up. That's what Jesus said. It wasn't some grand thing. It wasn't some big pronouncement. He just said, hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. And he takes her by the hand and he, he lifts her up and she opens her eyes. She's a 12-year-old, so she's going to be hungry. She gets up and she's awake. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. <laughs> That's one of those no-duh moments, right? Yes, pretty amazing. But so tender, so sweet, so loving. Think now, two times in a row, how Jesus has treated somebody in desperate need. This wasn't about him. He's not grandstanding. He's not trying to impress anybody. He only took six people and there were only six of them in the room with him or five with him that day. He calls her and she gets up and then he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You see, here's the interesting thing about Jesus is that he was on this mission to save the world. And he knew that if he'd made a huge deal out of this, that, the, that it would be overwhelming push to now crown him king right now. Look what he's done. And, and so he, he knows it's gonna get out because the little girl's gonna walk out of the room and, and things are gonna be said and the, the word's gonna go out. But he's making a statement here that, that it's not time to crown me because before the coronation, there has to be a crucifixion. And we're gonna wait. It's not time yet but there'll be a crucifixion and a resurrection and then there's going to be a coronation. But before that happens, the crucifixion has to happen. There has to be that moment. So Jesus says, don't, don't go out and talk about this, but wait. It's not the time. It's not the hour. Wait for me. So I want you to picture this because here's that, that, that truth again, that principle that when you approach Jesus, you always give more than you expected and you always get more than you expected. So imagine Jairus, ruler of the synagogue, important guy. He falls at Jesus' feet. He's asking Jesus to heal his fevered, sick daughter, and what he gets 
is a resurrection. He had no idea, but he had to give Jesus more than Jesus expected, he, uh, more than he expected. He had to wait uh, that time as Jesus is dealing with this woman. He had to stand there and wait for Jesus while he's focusing on this one person while all of this mass of humanity is surrounding them. He's waiting there. He had to give more than he expected that he was gonna have to give. He had to trust more than he expected that he was gonna have to trust, but then he was gonna give get more than he could have ever dreamed. He didn't get just a healing. He got a resurrection. He saw his daughter come back to life. And then imagine that woman that had the hemorrhaging for 12 years. Now, here, isn't this interesting that she, for that whole little girl's life, this woman had been sick. She'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. The little girl's 12 years old. For her, that little girl's whole life, this woman had been sick. And she thought, if I can just sneak up close enough and touch his garment, I'll be healed. And what Jesus said, here's what I want you to give, because I'm going to stop, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, hey, I need a show of hands. Who just touched me? Because I felt it. Who, who is that? This wasn't just something ordinary, but somebody needed me. Somebody snuck up. Somebody came to me with a great need, and I felt the power go out. And who was it? And she was going to have to stand up in front of all of her friends and all of those people that considered her an outcast, that considered her unclean. And she was going to, ha she was going to have to stand there and say, it was me, Jesus. I'm the one that touched you. Uh, she was going to have to give more than she expected to give. She couldn't sneak anymore. She wasn't anonymous anymore. Jesus said, I need you to stand up. I need you to tell me. I want everybody to see who you are. And what she didn't understand is not only was she going to be healed, but in that moment, if you're in the crowd and you considered her outcast, if you considered her unclean, you had to look Jesus in the eye because Jesus had just said, hey, you know what? She's my daughter. You don't get to treat her like that anymore. She is in now. And what Jesus offered her, what Jesus gave her that she didn't expect, he said, your faith has made you well because you overcame your fear with belief that you trusted me and this is the result of, of when your fear collides with your faith and we allow faith to win. Jesus said, here, this is what happens. And then he said, this was so wonderful to her. He said, peace be with you. My shalom be with you. This idea of I'm not just giving you a healing, I'm giving you a wholeness. I'm giving you a relationship with me that changes everything about your life, changes your identity. That's why Jesus says in, in John 14, 27, my peace I give you. Not the peace that the world gives, but my peace I give you. It's a peace that the world can't give and the world can't take away and he gives it to that woman that day and she wasn't expecting anything like that. She had to give more than she expected but she got more than she could have ever expected. So here's what I'd like you to think about this morning. I'd like you for just a second to put yourself in the story somewhere. Maybe you're just part of the crowd and you're, you're kind of going with the flow of, trying to see what's the next cool thing that Jesus is going to do. What's he going to say today? What's going to happen today? And, and you experience that, that all of a sudden that Jairus comes and falls at Jesus' feet and you are stunned. Whoa, this is Jairus. We all know who he is. He's important. He's famous. He matters in this community and he is laying at Jesus' feet begging for help. 
Maybe you consider yourself, you know, you've got a little prominence. You've accomplished a few things. You're, you're more like Jairus. Well, let me help you understand that when you have a need, uh, your child, your spouse, some, you know, your life, everything gets equaled out and we need Jesus. Maybe you feel like the woman. You just think, man, if I could just sneak, if I can make myself really small and just sneak through the crowd and touch him, I'll get enough to make me feel better. And Jesus is saying, I've got so much more for you than that. Don't sell it short. I want to change everything about you. I want to change your life. I want to make you whole. I want to give you my peace. We always give more than we expect, but we always get more than we expect. So where, where are you in this story this morning? Because Jesus wants to give you more than you ever expected. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Your word is so good, and your word is so true. And Lord, you've given us these pictures for our sake, and we thank you for that this morning. And, and Lord, I, I, I ask that you give us the insight to put ourselves in the story, Lord. Where, where, do, where does our fear need to be overcome by faith? Lord, are, are we hiding are we trying to stay anonymous and just try to get enough of you to make our life better? But not to show up so much that people will see us. Lord, wherever we are this morning, we want to receive your truth. We want to acknowledge the fact that you're going to call us to give more than we expected, but you're always going to give us more than we expected. Lord, that you are going to call us as your children with love and intimacy and Lord, we want to thank you for that this morning. We want to thank you that our identity is in you, that we're your sons and we're your daughters. We give you thanks. We give you praise, Lord, for that in Jesus' name. Amen.